Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you, or maybe your company, or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie@mission.org, and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie@mission.org and let's chat. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. There has been so much buzz around Web3 and NFTs for a while now, but are they actually useful to your brand? If so, what should you believe and how do you even get started? Roger Beeman is the man with all the answers. Alongside his impressive background and amazing stories of resilience, Roger has also helped grow several companies to rapid success, including the one he currently heads up, which is called Novel. Novel is the company that's making Web3 accessible to any and all brands. So if you've been waiting for a Web3 and NFT explainer, the wait is over. Everything you need to know is right here. Enjoy today's episode. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family? Travel? The latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. All right, Roger, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have this conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I know we are going to be going deep into the world of Web3 and commerce, and there's a lot to talk about. But before we get into that, I want to start the interview with hearing what is the most contrarian thought you have when it comes to web three and commerce and you don't have to tell me why just tell me what's the most contrarian thought you have yeah i think that uh and obviously you know i'm I'm kind of biased but it's also really what led to us creating novel i think that web three is actually pretty simple and it's going to become a standard part of the brand playbook i like it okay so we will figure out why and how it's simple later on before that though Um, I want to get into your background. I know you had a very, I'll just call it a different upbringing childhood than I personally had. And looking at where you are today, it'd be hard to even know what you went through. And I think that'd be an interesting starting point of, you know, how you got to today and what kind of things you went through in your younger years. Sure. Well, before going there, though, I actually would like to hear, you know, we, we talked a little bit before, and I think that your own background is, is worth sharing. I think independently in its own right, you know, CEO and and I looked to do it and you you're a mom of three. 
And um, so you say that your own background is more typical or more mainstream or something, but I think that that's pretty impressive. And I know you had your own experience with blockchain technology as well, which, you know, is obviously relevant. Okay. I love that first interview that someone's flipped it back on me and I'm here for it. Um, Okay. So my background summarized very quickly. Let's see. Upbringing. I grew up like very much a tomboy. I was always with the boys playing sports, constantly trying to build businesses, always reading, you know, going to the library and my sister would be reading these. I have a twin sister. She'd be reading these very sad kids dying from cancer books, like really like morbid stuff that apparently all like the girls were into back then. And I was reading how to build a business 101 and how to, you know, whatever it may be, like build a bracelet company and figuring out logistics. And so we grew up very differently, but also very close. Um, She was very girly. I was not. And so we went to college together. And that's when we kind of fully separated where she went down to the teaching path. And I decided to go down the finance path got an investment finance degree because I was like, I want to learn how to invest my own money. And I didn't really think college was that helpful. So I was like, well, might as well choose something that can actually personally help me. Got that degree in like three years, hopped out uh, and started working at Fannie Mae while bartending and doing all the things that you do when you're like 19, 20, lots of bartending, lots of fun. But then, yeah, I went over to Fannie Mae and started working in finance and economics. And that was actually what I was mentioning of like my first maybe entrance into the world of blockchain because I had been working there for, I think, two years. And I was writing these housing papers and I was looking up, you know, all these defaults and mortgages and, you know, what had happened in the crisis and people still trying to, you know, make payments on it. And all these documents were everywhere and nothing could be found. And I went to our chief economist at the time and I said, hey, you know, I've been looking up all the fees that go into all this and all the organization issues and no one knows who actually owns the titles to these mortgages and like so many issues. And I think that we could put a lot of these documents on the blockchain and it would save this much money. I'd like done my own little calculation back then at like my intern level, which I'm sure was not correct at all. However, (laughs) it was a range. It was something. So I went and presented that to him and just said, I think this is something we should explore. This was in 2012, though. So very, very early days. Still very hard to like do anything, you know, on it, at least from my perspective. And at the time he (laughs) looked at me and he was like, Stephanie, that's like the dumbest idea I've ever heard. That's such a scam. I basically said, like, get back to your cube and you finish that next housing report. Okay. (laughs) And so that was when I realized, like, okay, this kind of corporate setting is not for me because, you know, I was definitely new in my career, but it wasn't even like looked into. And then I went out instantly and I just bought five Bitcoin, which was very hard to do at the time. I mean, yeah, it was, (laughs) I was, wow. I like, I remember sitting there for multiple days trying to figure out like, wait, now I do, what do I do? And how do I get this? And it was insane. And uh, then I quickly switched over to Google. So Google had been recruiting me, but I was in DC and I was closer to my family there. And I had been telling Google, like, "Ah, I don't know. I don't know if I feel like moving to California. And then I ended up having four different offers from four different teams there. And so I was like, after that happened at uh, Fannie Mae, I was like, I think I'm going to go try something new. So I jumped over to Google, worked there, um, was managing like a billion dollar P&L for maps and street view. Yeah, then just started working on mission with, uh, at the time he was, it wasn't my husband yet. Maybe, maybe he was my husband. Anyways, he's my ex-husband now we're friends. We still work together. Uh, but we started building mission and, um, yeah, it started out on a medium platform. We were writing on there. It took off. We had a lot of writers and we thought, Hey, what if we turned, you know, this written series that's doing really well, we turned it into a podcast. And so this was in 2018, we went to Salesforce and just said, would you like to sponsor this upcoming podcast. We had never done a podcast before. We didn't really know how to make it. And for some reason back then they said yes. 
Um, and that was the start to the whole company. And so fast forward to today, I'm CEO of the company. Yeah, I have three boys under the age of four. Um, and we have a network of 21 podcasts. Each one has different sponsors and it mostly focuses on interviewing the C-suite and executives within the Fortune 1000. So there's my high level for you. The first and only that I've ever given on this podcast before. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's a, a really interesting uh, arc there where you kind of went from being this tactical person to being this storyteller. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and I think that that there's definitely some corollaries there with with my own transition from being an engineer to being a founder. You know, yeah, a lot of my job as as a founder and as an entrepreneur involves storytelling. One interesting aspect of your story, by the way, is the the mechanism by which one would actually record mortgages or real estate transactions on the blockchain is probably an NFT. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, nowadays it's like ah. Oh. I was just too early. Yeah. I mean, there were, you know, you know, that's the problem. I was just so ahead of my time. And now people yeah. are like, yeah, duh, you could definitely do that with NFTs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see that starting to happen now. I yeah. think it's a tough one to crack, honestly, because I think time, I mean, people have tried to, to do real estate and NFTs or real estate and blockchain a lot, but just generally, you know, it's so local specific, like it's so tied up in regulation and NFTs, so what we've seen move first, right, is literally digital art, no regulation, and then, you know, these communities. But I do think that there's going to become, at some point, and in the doc that I wrote up, like, for kind of like where the company and where, like, the industry could go, it's in there, this idea of kind of this marriage of traditional legal ownership with blockchain ownership. I think that will eventually happen probably particularly in places where there's a lacking secondary market, uh, such as like music copyrights. But anyways, uh, so uh, my own background, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there is a a typical path to to entrepreneurship or being a founder, but my own background is probably pretty atypical, I guess. (laughs) Started, you know, I, uh, I grew up with a very loving family, but at some point I kind of lost my way there. And by 16, I ended up in, it was sort of a, a rehab slash jail combo for a year. It was a long time. That was a really transformative experience for me. I ended up completely turning my life around from there. I, I mean, thank God that, you know, grew up and, and, you know, I was born into this, this country that we live in where there's lots of second chances. And yeah, I was able to go to community college and I actually graduated a year ahead uh, in college and, you know, near the top of my class, you know, and then I ended up working at Goldman Sachs and, you know, a bunch of prestigious places. Um, I earned, you know, three patents in various engineering disciplines, but like really, I guess what that, that whole set of experiences taught me was just this idea. It kind of taught me this sort of ability to survive, if you will. And I think that that's a really important thing in being an entrepreneur, right? You're kind of starting, you're building legitimacy up from nothing. No one cares about your company. Uh, and, you know, this is just you and some code on your laptop, right? But I think a, a big thing was that I had to kind of go against the grain in order to survive, right? Like the base case, the trajectory that I was on was pretty negative. And so if I just kind of stayed the course, that wasn't going to work out. So I kind of had to, to figure out my, my path out of that. 
And I think that that kind of ability or sort of that, that experience of going against the grain, but having it work out is something that led to me being an entrepreneur later, because I think that, you know, it's like being an entrepreneur is abnormal. It's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, someone pointed out to me once being an entrepreneur is actually, you know, the highest potential way to, to, you know, for a financial outcome, right? It's the way that everyone knows that you could earn potentially the most money. And there's actually no barrier to doing it, right? And yet very few people do, right? Uh, like it's a very abnormal thing to do. And for good reason, it's extremely hard, you know, and there, there's a lot of risk and it's, it's nerve wracking a lot of the time. And, but so I think that, you know, that experience of kind of surviving that and, and traveling up from <laughs> a really harrowing, you know, tough time sort of gave me the, the, the skin and the, uh, the, the sort of will to do it. And also just, you know, uh, in a sort of ravenous way, that's maybe a little abnormal. So anyways, you know, I wasn't an entrepreneur by at the start of my career. And, and I know many people start their careers that way that they kind of have it in them. But I was always looking for that next challenge. I actually started, I studied finance and economics like yourself. I started in that trajectory. I got super into engineering, just kind of out of a, a passion driven thing. And ended up going that way and, and obviously getting super into that. And then I, I had my first experience working at a startup. It was this prop tech company called Reonomy. It was this kind of incredible experience where the content of what we were working on was commercial real estate. It, it would, didn't really pull on the heartstrings, but you know, there were really interesting problems. And the community of the people there that worked there like they were all so jazzed every day about coming to work. And there was just this kind of magical fairy dust startup energy that created this incredible community. I'm still in touch with probably over 50% of the people that I worked with. And it's, and we kind of have reunions still being a part of that was really inspiring to me. I wanted to build that, you know, myself, right. I, I thought, you know, maybe I could do that someday, you know, and then an opportunity came along for me to do that. And I, you know, what had happened was the, the pandemic happened, right? And I saw this huge boom happening in e-commerce. And I think a lot of that was driven by the fact that all of a sudden we became willing to buy things that we were used to buying in the grocery store online. That was the big difference. E-commerce was already there, but we became willing to buy, you know, things that we eat online. So there was this huge e-commerce boom happening. And I thought I wanted to be a part of that. So I started a company that was in the e-com subscription billing space. It's called Smarter. And that experience, I mean, it was, it was incredible. I'm extremely grateful for it. I started this company on my laptop and brought together some, some great friends. And we got to you know, a company that was worth $75 million in nine months. Wow. And yeah, and you can just imagine we were going against a $2 billion incumbent and it was just, you know, an insane time, uh, right? Like that we, we got that far that fast. I'd say there again, you know, there was that experience that I had of going against the grain and having it work. And I think that that kind of told me that that was, you know, being an entrepreneur was probably what I want to do for, for the rest of my life. Oh, wait, what happened to Smarter? You get the $75 <laughs> billion valuation and then what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, when the stakes get high really quickly, that can sometimes bring out the worst in some people. And I, I suppose I was kind of naive and I misread the intentions of some of the people that, that I had brought in. 
And the way that it ended was pretty tragic. Uh, the, the people that I had brought it, that I had, you know, the team that I had brought together and myself, you know, uh, we'd sacrificed a lot, obviously, to accomplish what we had. And we basically ended up with nothing for it, but, you know, in terms of equity, right? Mm-hmm. Because investors came in and took majority equity <laughs> yeah. from the founding team. I suppose when I say the misread intentions, I basically gave control of the company to those investors because I trusted them. Right? Yeah. And then, I mean, basically what, what had happened was we were on the cusp of raising the $75 million valuation Series A. This competitor, Recharge, had just raised $271 million and at a $2 billion valuation. And then there were these upstart competitors that were, you know, like fellow upstarts, right? So this was kind of this perfect opportunity. We had a ton of celebrities and, uh, you know, some of the best, the guy that was going to lead the round was this guy. He was ranked the number three venture capitalist in the world at that time. And we had, you know, the full suite of Silicon Valley elites lined up to do this round. And it was perfectly timed to elevate us, us above these upstart competitors and uh, position us as a, you know, a real contender against this $2 billion company. And the funny thing is I'm, I'm friends with the founder of that $2 billion company today. And, and he acknowledged that you know, I, was, I was a real threat to him at that time. And he's actually an investor in Novel. Uh, and so- Funny how things come full circle. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, though, yeah, I mean, basically as part of that, I'd sought to really elevate these, these people that I had brought in and some of these investors that I had given control to were really against that. I think that they saw themselves as likely to get diluted more if I elevated these people that, that I wanted to elevate, particularly this one person. And yeah, basically on the night that I thought that that deal was going to get done, I woke up the next day and, uh, and no longer was a part of the company that I had started and, and essentially had you know zero equity in it. Um, the friends that I had brought on, uh, you can kind of imagine, were pretty disgusted by that and, you know, left shortly thereafter. So, uh, you know, it was a pretty tragic, I mean, it was really like a founder's worst nightmare, how, how that ended. But I guess the, the thing that was nice was that it ended quickly, right? And, and so I the actual... nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm still sad, but okay, yes. It, it was sad. Uh, it was extremely sad. With regard to the, you know, it ended quickly. And what that meant was that the actual amount of time that I had spent on that, you know, on that adventure with these friends, right? Only a very small portion of it was extremely bad. And so the, uh, you know, so, so we had kind of experienced that meteoric rise together. And so, you know, a lot of them were excited to do that again. And I had fortunately met, you know, some of the best venture capitalists in the world as, as a part of that journey, started talking to them about different ideas. And yeah, w- one thing that we had really seen and yeah, this, this was the, the kind of follow-on trend to that e-com trend of COVID. Apple had made these privacy changes that were obviously well-intentioned and you know, beneficial to us as consumers, but they had dramatically increased the Facebook ad acquisition channel, which had been a big driver, an important staple in the foundation of the business of many of these e-com startups, right? And so what we thought was, you know, all right, Web3 is emerging as a trend. Is there a way to kind of build these Web3 communities around brands and lead to basically this alternative acquisition channel, primarily driven via word of mouth, right? And these communities around these brands 
And is there a way to provide this alternative acquisition to these Facebook ads that have just tripled in cost uh, and essentially save a lot of these businesses and, and make them be sustainable again, right? And that was what you know really drove us to start Novel. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. Okay, so before we get into deeper into what Novel's doing and the Web3 space, I think it might be helpful to define the different web versions. And you can tell me if this is wrong because this is like very high level, but how to think about is Web1 was from 1990 to 2005. And that was kind of like when the government and researchers and educational institutions finally had access to email and, you know, they were able to talk to their friends through the internet. That was like Web1. Then Web 2 goes to 2005 until I would say 2021, 2020, somewhere around there. And that was when all of a sudden you have all these platforms that people are playing on and the platforms are owning the audience. So you get on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you're at, those platforms are essentially owning your audience that you're building up. And then they're monetizing against that audience via ads and whatnot. And now Web 3 is moving to a space starting in the past year or so where now the creator owns their own audience and they can port it wherever they want to go, depending on what maybe a platform, depending on how the protocols are built, but it's not really dependent on a social platform anymore. Is that the way to think about it? And if not, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's pretty accurate. I think that, you know, web one kind of looked like a billboard, but on your computer screen, it was kind of a one-way communication. And then web two was the idea, you know, websites that have accounts where you actually have this user account, you are a presence in, in the website, right? And yeah, Web3 is sort of, you know, instead of you having this account that's kind of stored within, you know, Google or whatever it may be, you've kind of got this universal account that you own and you can sort of selectively plug in where you'd like to, right? So I think from a technical mechanism, that's, you know, standpoint, that's, you know, that's pretty much how they work, right? The interesting thing too is like we use things because of the value that they provide us, right? And the killer use cases, not really how they work, right? We've talked about this. The the first killer use case, right, for the internet that that I think most of us experience, certainly people in, in our generation, was communications, right? We got super excited about you know AIM. Yeah, say AOL. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> MySpace. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. AIM, MySpace. You know, and, and basically, and, and the funny thing is, I don't know about you, like when I when I got excited about these things, I was in middle school and high school, so I was I was literally running home yeah. to communicate with the people that I had just seen at school. Oh but, yes. Uh, <laughs> the interesting thing was that this was like this addicting first use case of the internet, you know, and, and it made us willing to put up with all of the, the hiccups and shortcomings of the internet at that time. It was ridiculously slow. I remember, you know, the birds chirping with dial up and then you would take over the whole phone line. So like no one could call the house. So you kind of had to take turns between the phone and the internet, but all these things, you know, in order to, to, to chat with my friends online, they were totally worth it. 
so yeah, you know, I think that was this killer use case that we experienced was communications. And then the, the next one was this transition to commerce. And now today, most of us do most of our shopping online. And so where Web3 is at, the initial use case was actually kind of like a billboard. It was like, all right, this profile picture, this, this artwork that you can convey, you know, like I own this, right? Um, in that sense, I think it was kind of like fashion where it's like a public indication of private ownership. You can see the clothes that I wear and that says something about me. And then where Web3 transitioned to next and, and has the, the growing use case now has been communications, right? Where you get access to this exclusive chat and it's kind of this interesting way to meet people that share an interest with you, right? And then, you know, the transition that we're seeing happen now and that obviously Novel is a part of is the commerce, right? And the intersection of commerce with that Web3 identity, right? So yeah, I think that, you know, it's following a similar arc to what the internet itself followed. Yeah, so as a brand, I mean, I know you said, you know, your contrarian view was that Web3 is simple and most brands should be playing in that or at least exploring it right now because that's where people want to be. But what does that actually look like from a brand's perspective? And I think maybe it's, I'm still trying to figure out how to map all the concepts because if you think about the Web1, 2, and 3, they're very different time periods where you can kind of see like, oh, I was on you know, operating in this one space. And then I jumped over to this other space. It's very different, like pretty different. And then when I think about Web3, I still don't understand the space that you're in. And then of course, when people start adding it, okay, and NFTs and blockchain and all these other things, I'm still trying to be like, well, where should a brand play (laughs) if you want to play in Web3? What does that actually look like? Because it feels like there's still a lot of mixing between things where it's like people will do things partially on the blockchain, but then the technology is still not there. So then they kind of go back to the old way of doing it, especially, I don't know if you've heard of Jenkins, the valet, he's part of like one of the board apes and they created this whole story structure around Jenkins and that all these other apes were able to come in and add their own story to it. And it like took off, turned into a whole company. But he was kind of saying that, you know, even now they have to mix between like the old way and new way, because I mean, Ethereum fees are really high. Like they're just doing it from a contractual standpoint to get these stories on there. Yeah. So it feels like we're in this weird time period where I'm like, I don't exactly know how it looks seamless for brands, but I would love to hear, you know, how you think brands should be playing in this world. Yeah. There's kind of cacophony of jargon and it makes it kind of tough to see the, the signal through the noise. There's also this cacophony of hype and what's, you know, likely a bubble (laughs) you you can kind of have the latest price uh, overshadow like what's really going on. Right. And I think that that's kind of interesting. I mean, you always see that actually with any market, right. Where it's like, (laughs) like you're much more likely to read an article about the housing prices in your neighborhood than you are to, to read about, you know, the block party that happened last week. Right. But the block party that happened last week is actually what makes you excited to live in that neighborhood. And so I think that right now there's, you know, one voice that's really dominating that's talking about just where the price is moving with NFTs, right? Uh, But that's not really talking about the value that people are getting. I think that another voice that's happening is the voice of the how it works, right? Well, I guess taking a step back with any wave of technology, the initial adopters are people that understand how it works, And we see that with, say, personal computing, right, where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak demoed the Apple One to a group of electrical engineers at the Homebrew Computing Club. And today, you know, 
probably neither of us really understand how the laptop in front of us works, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, which, which means that, you know, it's hit mass adoption, right? And so I think that there still is a lot, a large voice in the room that's talking about, you know, how it works uh, with blockchain. And so the voice that, you know, is emerging and the one that I think is the most exciting is the voice that's just talking about the value that they're getting from being a part of an NFT community, right? Because, because fundamentally, you know, we don't buy things because of how they work unless we're tinkerers. And we don't buy things based on the price going up and down or where we think that'll go unless we're speculators. Like most of the things that we actually buy, we buy because of the value that we get out of them, right? Those other two voices need to die down a little bit and this other voice needs to emerge more. And it is actually, right? Uh, it's just not the loudest voice right now. Yeah. But yeah, so, so to kind of go back to your questions around like, you know, how do brands use this today, right? Um, and I suppose my, my contrarian viewpoint, right? So, I mean, I think that simply put, blockchain is a database that nobody owns, that's the kind of interesting thing that was pulled off there was this database that nobody owns and therefore it's kind of exceptionally trustworthy. And a simple use case for that is a bank account, right? Like it's literally just a number, a balance attached to an ID, right? It's your bank ID. And that's where, you know, cryptocurrency came in, right? And that was, you know, kind of the first killer use case of the technology was as a currency. And then there's, you know, these different merits to a decentralized currency, right? Like it's got, you know, less government control, Right now, obviously, you've seen the ruble dramatically decline. And one way that one can pay Russian people uh, who are working for them and, and be sure that they're getting a fair wage is, is through cryptocurrency, right? So that's kind of the value there. Uh, so what NFTs are is a public indication of private ownership. And the literal term non-fungible basically means that, you know, we probably both know it from being econ majors, but it basically means unique. What it is, is basically private property ownership in a decentralized way, because the private property is inherently all unique, right? You know, a piece of real estate, like what you had mentioned, my apartment and the apartment next to it are each unique, right? And so if you want to indicate ownership of those, right, you need this kind of unique identifier. Currency, on the other hand, is fully fungible, right? And so each, you know, each Bitcoin has to be exchangeable with every other Bitcoin, right? So that's what, you know, fundamentally an NFT is, is an indication of decentralized ownership, or in other words, a public indication of private ownership, right? So that's why it's, I think, similar to fashion where it's like, you know, your, the clothes that you wear, right? That is something that you're publicly displaying that you own, but is, you know, privately owned, right? The fact that it's digital, though, allows different ecosystems to layer additional functionality on top of that ownership such as access to an exclusive chat or access to an early product release uh, or a discount to a product, right? Or an exclusive chat with the founder, right? Like if NFTs are like this mechanism by which you can, you know, attach value. Yeah. And so I, I think that, you know, it can kind of get all lost in the jargon, right? But that's, that's fundamentally what it is, right? A technology like Novel is, is really working on that third voice that I mentioned, right? Getting rid of the technical complexity around both creating NFTs and distributing to them, them to your customers and, and the customer experience of owning, owning them. And also getting rid of the complexity of adding value on top of them to your customers from your brand. Long-winded way to say that that's basically what NFTs are. 
that's where you know novel sits strategically in the direction that I think they're going. So then I guess the question is, you know, how are brands practically using them, right? Yeah, let's hear a story. How are they using them today? <laughs> um, so, so there's three uh, use cases that we see that we're pretty excited about. One is sort of this premium tier, this sort of black card dedicated to your brand. These customers that own this NFT get early access to a product drop uh, or you know, get to meet the founder, get these things that they want because they are you know, especially excited about your brand. So this sort of premium membership to your brand, right? That's, that's use case number one. We work with a bunch of brands that are pretty excited about that. Uh, Everlane is, is one in particular. You know, I was talking with Michael last week, the founder of Everlane. He was you know, particularly excited about that case. Which is kind of like a new version of a loyalty program, just much easier to track, I would say. <laughs> yeah, well, the interesting thing, a loyalty program is kind of like, all right, points that are with, you know, dedicated to the specific brand. And I think that, you know, people find NFTs much more exciting because it's, you know, it's something that you own. There's this exclusivity that you get, you know, you get access as a part of it. And also, one thing that loyalty points can't really do, there's this opportunity for collaboration across brands. For example, you know, if you want to offer, if Everlane wanted to offer also perks to, say, Board Ape Yacht Club members, right? Or there's a company that, you know, I know the founders of well uh, called Bev, that's a female founder, you know, female founded wine company. And, you know, if they want to offer perks, let's just say, uh, to World of Women founders, right, uh, or World of Women NFT holders, sorry, then they can do that, right? And so there's this sort of a brand partnership that becomes possible in a way that doesn't really exist in a traditional loyalty program. Got it. Okay. That's a helpful explanation. Okay. Now, what's the next one? Let's hear the second one. The second one is, is this idea of community building, Right. And so you could think of category one of this premium brand membership as benefits that you experience by yourself. And you could think of category number two as benefits that you experience with your fellow customers. So I think that that's a really exciting thing about NFTs is there's this opportunity for brands to, to get closer to their customers, but there's also this opportunity for their customers to get closer to each other. I think that a lot of great brands built today have an amazing community built around them. And a lot of times that community is just kind of waiting to be activated and waiting to be brought together. There's Liquid Death, the, the drop that they did, Murderhead Death Club is a great example of that. You know, they've built an incredible brand, you know, where they're around seltzer water that's dedicated to this, this metalhead community and going to metal shows like that's, that's a real community that, you know, I actually used to be a part of when I was younger. And I have, you know, photo evidence of that. Um, <laughs> I don't want to see this. Yeah. That can be the profile picture of the episode. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, so, so there's, I, I can attest personally that that is a very real community and, and it's an exciting one to be a part of. And so, you know, that was uh, like Liquid Death basically had that and knew that they had that and NFTs were a way to bring that group of customers together, right? Another example that I can think of is a, is a company that we're working with. It's called Freedom Raveware. And they're, you know, they have this dedicated, you know, their, their return rate of their customers is ridiculously high. And I think that that's a good metric for knowing, you know, if an NFT collection would be successful for your brand is the return rate of your customers already. 
what's high mean like what's a high number oh man let's just say that it's like i don't know 30 to 70 percent but well that's okay. a huge range let's say 50 to <laughs> say 70 zero to 100 percent anywhere in between <laughs> 50 to 70 percent let's just say right okay uh you've got customers that come back like over the life of your of your brand and so and that kind of indicates that you know there there's something you know really to your brand your customers have something you know attachment to specifically your brand and uh yeah and, and freedom raveware is, is this great example of this company where they have you know like they sell this these rave clothing they have a huge you know base of customers they have these Ooh, drops of clothing look them up yeah they have these drops of clothing that sell out very quickly oh i see okay i need this for my burning man adventure yeah uh okay. yeah well burning man would be another great one where like they should do an nft collection like these communities already exist right yeah. and uh yeah and you know like they're just excited to be brought together right there's usually like this activity that these people do together that that is already kind of forming this bond and they're just excited. You know, I'm a part of developer DAO. I, I enjoy nerdy engineering stuff, right? Yep. And that, that's one thing that I think is just exciting as, you know, a side note, just for like the end customer, less, you know, from their perspective, more than from the brand itself, right? Is I think that the pandemic kind of brought a lot of our lives to be more remote. And with that, we lost a large sense of community. And I think that NFTs provide this interesting way for us to sort of form these digital neighborhoods, right? For ourselves, right? Like we get to choose which ones we're part of. And I think that, you know, it's, it creates this, this way that you can kind of basically make new friends uh, and bond over a common interest. That really to me is like the promise of Web3 for, for end customers is this idea of this digital neighborhood. Uh, you know, e-com is the shops in that neighborhood, but really it's, you know, this way that you have to form friendships, right? And that might seem a little crazy today, but I guess the thing that I would respond to that with is online dating, right? That was deemed, you know, if you remember back in the going back through your web one, web two series there, at one point, online dating seemed totally insane and something that only weird people would do. Yeah. Same thing with like Airbnb, like, oh, yeah, you're going to stay in a stranger's house and get killed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and those things seemed, you know, fringe, right at that time. But there was enough demand that, you know, adoption was driven by, you know, early adopters. Right. But then eventually they became mainstream and commonplace. That is the promise of Web3 is kind of this these digital social clubs that you're a part of and this way to meet people. Because, you know, frankly, the, the ways that we, the places that we used to show up every day that, that led to us, you know, forming a lot of friendships, right? The workplace, school, right? Those have gone a lot more digital and you're much less likely to find your community there. So, you know, these provide an alternative way to do that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the, the third use case that is emerging, really, we haven't seen that much of it yet, but I, it's actually one that I'm really excited about is more this economic use case. So a great example of this is, well, all right, just, just take an example where I think it could have been a great fit. So I'm friends with the, the founder of HVMN. Uh, he's actually an investor in Novel. His name is Michael Brandt. He had for Ketones 2, this is this product that they launched. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, Ketones, it's this innovative health product and I'm a happy customer. So they had a 30,000 email wait list for this new product that they were launching, Right. Imagine if that could have been an NFT, right? Where you could redeem the product once it was out, right? 
then instead of that 30,000 email wait list, right, you have converted customers. And then there's this interesting aspect that weaves into use case number two, where these are the customers that are the most excited about your brand, like they've got something in common. So you can kind of solve both this economics use case and this cash flow use case, right? Maybe you can avoid raising a venture round, which, you know, is obviously tough to do in the present climate, but you can also build this community around the excitement for this product launch. That's something that I think, you know, is incredibly exciting. A, a, a case where we did see something like this was this company, Taika. We're working with them and, and the, the founders of the company are actually <laughs> both, both novel investors as well. Wow, you got um, a lot of good investors there. Well, so, yeah, you know, I mean, this is my second e-com startup. So, now yeah. you know. <laughs> What's Taika do? Yeah, Taika is this uh, innovative adaptogenic coffee drink, right? It's this coffee drink made by food scientists. And it's a really exciting brand, you know. So Taika has made this NFT collection in partnership with Friends with Benefits, this, this NFT community or this Web3 community. What it gives you access to is this exclusive product. Something that's really cool is this exclusive product is actually getting created in like via a DAO. Like basically you vote as a member of this NFT community, you vote on what that product will be, right? Okay. Before uh, you go on, explain what a DAO is for anyone who doesn't know. Sure. What does it stand for and what is it? <laughs> yeah. So basically an NFT collection, when an NFT collection drops, I mean, it's, it's basically like an IPO and you get a bunch of money from people that are, you know, then buying into that collection. A DAO is essentially, it stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, but it's basically a voting mechanism for how those funds that the that the NFT collection has get spent. And people can have different levels of voting rights depending on what they buy within the DAO, right? Like you can maybe buy certain levels where you have access to 300 votes on something versus another person might only have one depending on what NFT they buy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there, there's all sorts of different structures within that uh, that make sense for different use cases, right? But in Taika's case, they have you know a setup where you get to vote on what this product is that's getting made, and a good portion of the funds go towards actually creating that product. And we think that that's a particularly interesting case where it almost combines like all of one, two, and three, right? Where you've got the funding to create the product, then you've got this premium experience of getting to determine what that product is. And then you've also got this community of people that were excited enough about Taika and this product and this idea that they had to be a part of it, right? And, you know, that community probably has something in common and, you know, is excited to get to know each other. And you can think of like some stretch and like really interesting use cases of this economic, uh, this kind of cash flow use case, this bucket number three is something like, you know, imagine a wine club that gets made around a wine that actually will be, you know, is, is getting the aging process begins today, right? So in 15 years, you'll all get, you know, this wine, right? And, you know, you all bought into this today. Yeah. So sort of this future wine club. I've heard the same thing actually with bourbon in barrels. Apparently there's <laughs> going to be some kind of shortage of some kind of whiskey. I don't know. And this guy was telling me how... <laughs> They're buying up all the bourbon barrels and they're putting NFTs behind it. And I need to get in and get in quick. And I was like, oh, that's a lot of bourbon to drink, though. I don't know about that. <laughs> Anyways, I did see yeah. the concept, though. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm kind of speaking out of what I actually honestly know, you know, as, a, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, given my earlier story, you can imagine I don't drink today. And so, uh, so I hear yeah. about these alcohol use cases and, and it's aging use cases, I think, an especially interesting one. So I think that, you know, this idea of this kind of, uh, you know, pre-launch product, right, it's kind of moving the concept of almost like a Kickstarter, right, to be something that, you know, uh, is directed towards like a real entity and also builds this community of hype around it, right? And I think that that, you know, is a really exciting use case. And especially, you know, I think it can help fund brands that don't exist today, and I think it can help solve cash flow problems that might emerge for brands that do exist, right? Uh, another use case that, you know, I've gotten pretty excited about, given my own background with subscriptions uh, and Web3 combined, is the idea of, you know, th- there's this financial product that exists in the UK called a perpetuity, where you literally pay a lump sum, and then you get a stream of payments forever. So imagine that applied to a subscription right, where you pay uh, a lump sum and you basically get a lifetime e-commerce subscription. Yeah, that'd be nice. Instead of like worrying about every month having to repay, I thought I'd just pay for it all up front. Yeah, what I'm going to get absolutely it forever. Is that so much to ask? I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and so obviously and, and the, the thing that I think is really interesting about it, too, is that none of these, because fundamentally, you know, NFTs are just this public indication of private ownership, like the mechanism is actually the same. So these use cases are not mutually exclusive. You can use that economics, you know, case, right, of let's say the forever subscription, but you could also have this community of people that also have that forever subscription. You probably have something in common if, you know, you care enough about this brand that you've wanted to do that. And then you can also obviously offer, you know, premium experiences, you know, to those forever subscribers, right? This economics use case is actually one that will become more and more interesting, particularly as, you know, the turbulence in the VC markets kind of emerges as a a real issue for CPG brands, that issue of the Facebook acquisition channel, right? That's not going away, right? So I do think that NFTs offer this way that's an alternative to that, right? And in a number of ways, and I think that that'll get more and more interesting as, you know, these, these challenges emerge. Yeah. So is there anything that you're skeptical of in this space right now? Like certain things I hear, or I'm like, you know, for instance, DAOs. DAOs are mm-hmm. decentralized, autonomous organizations. That's something I hear about. And I'm like, will that actually stick around for the long term? Only because I think about how people stay incentivized to be within a community, to contribute. And you look at, you know, like, for instance, have you heard of CityDAO where people bought land in Montana? Okay. Did you hear about this one? I didn't. Yeah, they all, okay, they all came together and they purchased land in Montana. And you get into the Discord channel, which Mm -hmm. I'm in, because I was like, what's happening here? Yeah. And there's not, I mean, you can tell people like, what do we do with this? We have this land that we all own now. Mm -hmm. Now what? And I don't see, right now anyways, I don't see too much interactions. Mm -hmm. And then you think about, you know, you hear the top, hedge fund advisors and, you know, executives and kind of saying like, it's not always, you know, equal votes or like the best investments always came from the one person who had the idea. It was never about being unanimous. It was never about contributing equally. It was always, you know, letting individuals kind of sometimes take the lead. And so I kind of question things like DAOs because I'm like, well, based off all, you know, human history, it seems like that hasn't really worked that well. And it seems like it's really hard to keep, you know, a community that's pretty decentralized actually engaged at the same time. And like, 
how do you gamify it? So that's just one thought of mine. But yeah, I want to hear from you. Like, are there any things that you're kind of skeptical about? Like, is this going to be enduring, you know, for many years to come? Yeah, I think well, there's, there's two things that come to mind with that. One is I think that, you know, a lot of the NFT market right now is speculation driven, right? And I think that that has to go away. Any market that's dominated by speculators is not a real market, right? That's basically the definition of a bubble, right? If more people are just buying it based on where the thing, they think the price will go, then they are buying it based on the, the genuine value that they're deriving from it. And, you know, you see that with, yeah, with housing, right? Obviously, back in 2000, you know, 2007, 2008, certainly, you know, impacted our generation quite a bit, right? Uh, was that bubble. And, you know, what you saw was people buying houses. Uh, if you watch the big short, right, you saw people buying houses with no intent to actually live in those houses. They were just hoping to sell it to the next guy. And so I think that you see a lot of that and that that has to go away uh, and that the excitement has to be about the community itself, right? kind of compared it to <laughs> of, of buying into a lot of these NFTs, you know, like, it's like, all right, you buy into this country club. And then once you get inside this country club, all we're talking about, instead of talking about, you know, the great pool and like all of the things that we want to add to this country club to make this country club awesome. We're just talking about the next country club that we're going to go to. And so I think that what has to happen is people have to get much more excited about the country club that they're in, right? Rather than being excited about the next one to go to. That's like a life lesson right there. That's just even outside of this whole space. That's a good life lesson. <laughs> yeah, a good friend of mine, Peter Davis, actually, uh, he's the one of the co-founders of Getaway. He actually wrote a book on this specific topic called Committed. And he has this famous commencement speech from, uh, he was the valedictorian of his Harvard Law class. Yeah, he basically has this idea of, you know, us being in this infinite browsing mode uh, and, you know, just kind of settle in and commit, right? So I think that, yes, NFTs need more of that, right? But, you know, we're starting to see that. And I think, frankly, that brands play a big role in that where people are buying this because of their affinity to the brand, not because, you know, they're not just kind of ogling the price all day. They're excited about what they're going to get. So I think that that's thing number one. I think the other thing, yeah, with what you said, I think you're actually totally spot on where there's problems that we solve well as a group and there's problems that require basically concentrated accountability. When it comes to kind of like making a decision about you know what we want uh, or what we think is right, democracy is obviously a pretty great system, I'd say, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a happy participant. Yeah, when it comes to actually executing on something, delivering on it, doing that hard and painstaking work, right? Uh, that, you know, I mean, you're a CEO too, right? You know, when it comes to going through, say, you know, all of the minutia of legal headaches and HR setup and stuff like that, right? It takes concentrated accountability and commitment to, to get through that stuff for kind of a greater cause, right? You know, a, a model that I think will work well is something like what Taika has done, where the community is deciding what gets built, right? And like that, that decision is getting made as a group. But Taika is obviously on the hook for actually delivering that and, you know, calling up the manufacturers and, and, and dealing with the supply chain issues, right? And yeah, because I think, I think if you, you know, diversify the ownership of those, those thorny and not so fun problems, right? Yeah. 
uh, you know, then, you know, who's going to clear that land in Montana, yeah. uh, then, <laughs> uh, then I think that doesn't really work out as well, right? Making decisions together works well. And, and DAOs are probably a great model for that. When it comes to actual execution, I think that, you know, that kind of has to be uh, concentrated. That said, you know, that I just want to say you know, that there are people that my co-founders actually, I think, might disagree with me on some of these points. Uh, this that's is okay. Speaking, not novel speaking. Yeah. Hey, that's what this whole space is about right now. Lots of people agreeing and disagreeing on everything. So that's what's yeah. also fun about this world. Okay, well, the last question I want to ask you then is... Mm-hmm. What are you most excited about within the next year? I mean, the space is moving super quick. And normally I ask people like one to three years. Mm-hmm. But for you specifically, I feel like six months to a year, like what are you most excited about? Yeah, I think that, you know, yeah, within the next year, we're going to see Web3 become much more widely adopted, right? Uh I think that still, you know, when, when I talked about that transition from the people that know how it works, right, and the tinkerers and that are excited about how it works to the people that are just excited about the value that they're getting, right? That transition, you know, that the personal computer went fr- through from the tinkerers to, you know, everyday use. I think that Web3 is experiencing hypergrowth right now. And it'll be really exciting to see how that shapes the next year. I think there's sort of this chicken and egg problem of ease of use and 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 value that drive adoption. And obviously Novel is, you know, assisting a lot with with the ease of use, right? And and the value being provided, but you sort of need both of those to be to be greased, right? And you need both of those to uh to accelerate because there's also obviously with this whole community aspect, there's this network effect, right? So, I mean, right now, for example, I don't know of an NFT collection that's dedicated to veterans. If you're a veteran and you'd be interested in meeting other veterans, then Web3 might not have anything to offer you, right? And so, you know, we need that to grow, like the ease of use to, to continue to, to expand. And we also need the value and the offerings to continue to expand for this mass adoption to happen within the next year, uh, particularly as we see, like we're kind of all staying remote. Uh, I think that there's this, this hunger for communities will, will grow. Uh, I mean, we've got the first wave of college graduates that's going into the workforce in a remote environment, right? And just imagine that, right? A lot of my best friendships, you know, were formed through the workplace and the Zoom coffee never took off, right? Like it just doesn't yeah. work nearly as well to form that. So I think that, you know, we're going to have like right now, we've kind of still got this residual of people that formed these friendships and already have their communities from the places that they worked at, you know, before and, and the in-person experiences that they that they've had their, their whole lives. Right. And now we're having this this group of people emerge that's, that's not going to have that, you know, this hunger for community. Uh, is is really what's going to, to to push Web3 forward. And it's also where, you know, the problem that Web3 stands to solve. Love that. Well, Roger, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was a really interesting chat. I mean, probably one of the most interesting I've had in a really long time. So thank you for being a great guest. Where can people find out more about you and the work you're up to at Novel? Oh, sure. Well, we've got a bunch of content that's coming out soon. Uh, and so, you know, stay, keep your eye out for that. Um, you know, look out on social media 
Uh, and obviously, you know, if you have interesting ideas or by all means, you know, feel free to message me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You know, I love to talk about this stuff. Um, this is one of the most interesting talks I've had in a while too, by the way. Good. I'm glad. Thanks, Roger. listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.